Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And I would say um, uh, for all those people in, in, in what part of the world? I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm what? talking about the, you mean the Veterans Day, November oh, okay. 11th. There you go. There is that how, – how broad a holiday is that? It's It's big this year because it's exactly – how many years? Since 1918, to 2018. Yeah, special World War One so, so, celebration. So it's a it's a it's a special celebration of the centenary, I guess is the word. Yeah. Of the conclusion. And they're having a grand thing in uh, in Paris, I believe, right? Yeah, well, I think I think I think uh, Trumpy baby is going to pa- going to Paris. The big biggest one of all is probably probably. Going to be in London, I should think. London, I would think, yeah. And uh, it, it, and it, a, a moment's silence will be celebrated at in the eleventh hour of the eleventh day, in the eleventh month, in the eleventh month of November. And uh, I, I, my mother, she she was actually there. She, she she had a spot there in in Whitehall, in in recognition of her her community service. So it was a, it's a pretty big deal thing. Yes. Anyway. All right. Now, we have a big lineup, too, today. I mean, we, we have a, a bunch of superstars. Yes. Uh, starting off with um, the woman um, called the, awarded the title of um, Best Female Chef in the World by the World's 50 Best Restaurants, I was back in Claire June. Smith. Who has a restaurant? She she worked, of course. She ran Gordon Ramsay's restaurants for years, but uh, her own restaurant uh, has gotten acclaim she, for the she, first time. Her own restaurant called Core in London. Yeah, she charged. She in, got. She two, charged two, into the Michelin two, ratings with two with two stars, two, which is a big accomplishment. Big Anyhow, she was very thoughtful, and it was a very nice interview. And Claire Smith. Here she is. Claire Smith, I know all about you, but our listeners may not. Probably will, though, since you've, you've had a very busy year. Um, give us this a sort of a, a brief synopsis of um, where you're from and your, your path into chefing. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the places you've had really interesting experiences in the kitchen. Start with your Irish. Um, yeah, well, Northern Irish, so um, born in uh, in Northern Ireland um, and grew up there in a, in a farming background, but obviously British at heart, so, and lived in um, London since I was 16 years old. So, but you seem to, from what I've read, you seem to have known exactly where you were going to head, because you've done everything at a very early age. Um, what moved you so quickly into the culinary field? I I grew up um, with produce and and cooking uh, on the farm every day, uh, and I worked in local restaurants in my school holidays, and kind of just got into cooking, uh, and I started to read cookbooks. And I met some great chefs. I was very lucky that there was a local restaurant um, that I spent my school holidays working in that was probably one of the best restaurants in Northern Ireland at the time. And I met some great chefs. And so I started to read cookbooks and then heard about Michelin Guide, started to follow some of those Michelin-starred chefs and the glamour of that. In those days, it was probably more five-star hotels. So the first cookbook I bought was Anton Mosserman's Cuisine à la carte. Um, and I was drawn to it because it was a black cover with a hexagonal bowl with a tomato soup, I think it was. It was very Nouvelle Cuisine style, but it was very striking. And then I read about you know, the Dorchester Hotel in London, and I thought to myself, yeah, I'd like to be a chef because it was... An art form, I was always very creative, and when I saw that that was a possibility, that's really something that inspired me, and I thought from the age of probably 14 or 15 years old that I want, wanted to be a chef. Now, you, you've had some 
really, I mean, I don't want to say lucky because you obviously earned them, but you, you had some, um, oh, what would the term be, um, experiences um, cooking in, in very famous restaurants under very famous chefs. Uh, name some of those and conclude with um, what it was like working for Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> I'm sorry to do that to you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I... I kind of thought um, when I was younger if I wanted to make it to the top of my industry which I was very focused on doing uh, I needed to work under the best chefs in the world and I needed to train under them and to learn from them so I traveled quite a lot and I, I worked with some amazing chefs uh, when I was a kid I did stages everywhere that I could so from the Rue brothers to Heston Blumenthal at the Fat Dark to Thomas Keller. Um, I've worked, we spent time at El yeah, Sel de Can Rock, Arzac, everywhere, even if it was a day or two days. I, I just wanted to get my head into those kitchens to understand a little bit about what they did. Um, I spent a couple of years in France where I was working, where Alan Ducasse actually in Monaco yes. uh, at Louis Cairns. Um, and then I obviously I spent. 12, 13 years working with Gordon Ramsay, um, who is someone that is still my mentor today and someone that I speak to regularly and he's a big supporter of CORE. Obviously, I ran his flagship restaurant and the partnership there with him for yeah, almost 10 years. Uh, and, you know, we had a great, great working relationship and, and I learned a lot from him and he's a, an incredibly inspiring person. He's had a fairly tumultuous public uh, persona. Um, what, what was it about Gordon Ramsay that made him so amazingly successful and continuing to be a Michelin three-star holder, even, even when people know he's not in the kitchen there very much anymore? How was how he able to do that? Gordon's a very good um, manager of people. And uh, something that I learned from him, he, he kind of, he gives you a lot of uh, freedom and it's a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, it's a good thing if you're capable and it was a great thing for me. Uh, he, he believed in me when I was very young and gave me the opportunity and supported me and stood by me. He's someone that puts a lot of confidence in others if he sees talent and he's not scared to let those people grow. And I think that's a lot to do with his success. He's, he's at the age, I think, of about 25 when he first pulled me out and said, you know, we're going to make you a leader. We're going to teach you how to, to, as a young woman, to head up a kitchen. And then he put the belief in me and he said, you know, you've got the training. You know how to do this. You've got the talent. Let's teach you how to lead, lead a team. And, and that's kind of his success. Yeah, I mean, I think he's an outstanding example of somebody who has two distinct sides, his public persona and his private uh, accomplishments and, and ideas. Yeah, and so, but you, you had to have learned a lot in that period of time, and you showed that you were an award winner early on. You were um, the outstanding chef. Uh, chef of the Year in 2013. Um, the, uh, you had a perfect score in the Good Food Guide 2015 edition. And, well, uh, you've been on television, and, and it was uh, this year, uh, 2018, where you, the World's 50 Best Reference, made you the outstanding woman chef. Um, for the year, and I, I was there, and I listened to uh, your acceptance speech, or whatever they call those things, and um, you were sort of straddling the issue of this award. Um, a lot of women really complained that there should not be a separate woman category for this, and you said, what? Um, it, it's a really controversial issue, this uh, this thing. And, and 
this award, um, but controversy is a good thing because it opens up debate, and I think debate is very powerful. And, and whether you agree with it or not, there is no gender in the kitchen. You know, it, it was never a thing for me. Everyone else, my opening statement was people will always say to me, what's it like to be a female chef? I said, I've never been a male chef, so I don't know the difference. And there is, there is no difference. It's never um, entered into my head or anyone that I work with on uh, a day-to-day -day basis. It's just a job that you do. However, there is a real lack of women in the industry. We do need to have role models, the correct role models, the professional female chefs. And, you know, if that, if this award helps that, then that's a great thing. I think it's always easy to criticize things. I don't know what the right thing is to do. No one does. But I do know that we need to do something. So by this award being controversial, we're talking about it. And if it wasn't for the award, we, we wouldn't be talking about it. So, you know, I think that that's the main thing. We need to talk, we need to debate things, and we need to do little things every day that make a difference. And be conscious of the fact that we need to keep breaking down barriers. We need to keep... Hospitality industry is a wonderful industry, and, and we need people to come into it, men and women. And, and we need skills. So having more women makes a better working environment, in my experience. Well, there has been some advances in this, uh, as you know. Um, in, in the United States, it's been very tumultuous with the, the whole um, Me Too movement and, and so forth. Um, but this current issue of Food and Wine magazine's Best New Chefs, it used to be that you'd see this whole lineup of men and one, at most two women, and I think there was half, or maybe even one more than half, one more than half, on this year's edition, um, and I'm talking about more than one half of women in this lineup, and that was an extraordinary advance. Um, uh, what motivated you to break out and open your own restaurant after all this time, and you did in London, and it's called Core, and right out of the box, uh, against all odds, you, you emerged with two Michelin stars. What was your motivation and how hard? And tell us your emotions surrounding the experience. Um, yeah, so CORE was something that just, it was something that I felt that I had to do. I, I kind of achieved everything where I was, and, and I was still young, so I had was running a three Michelin star restaurant for almost a decade. I had 10 out of 10 in the Good Food Guide. I had five AA rosettes. I had been given an MBE. I had won nearly every chef of the year, but you know, and I still was in my mid thirties. So for me, it was really about business. It was to see if I can open my own business with my own vision, start something from the beginning. And, and that was a, a new challenge. So I wanted to do that. So I wrote a business plan. I started to design the restaurant. And I, and it was really about that for me. So it, it, it obviously the first year is, is a big uh, thing to get out of the way. It's tough. The first year is, is horrible because you've got to train everybody in your vision. And that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. But we have just passed our, our first birthday and the first award that we won was 10 out of 10 again and the good food guys. And then we won five out of five rosettes. And now we've just been awarded two Michelin stars straight away in our first year. We're obviously blown away by that. The support that we've received is phenomenal. We've put a lot of work into it. And, and it's not... I, I think it's amazing. Obviously, we're very, very happy with everything that we've achieved. But we, the restaurant's one year old, but my career started when I was 14, and I have invested a tremendous amount in myself um, and my team, so it's, it's great to just think, oh, it's a relief almost for us to think, yeah, okay, not we've made it, we're never going to make, we will never be there, but it's still the beginning for CORE, and I have a great uh, vision for it. And what is it? Um, I'm going to want to make the restaurant the best it can possibly be. And we've not achieved that in its first year. You know, you open with a budget, and your budget doesn't fit your vision. <laughs> and you, 
and <laughs> yeah, and for me, we're just reinvesting now in everything and the training. The team are much much stronger, and and we're, I think we're just at the beginning of what we can achieve. I know the answer to the question I'm going to ask you in just a second. I feel sure, uh, but a little bit of background as to why I'm even asking the question, because up up until now. There's always been a little asterisk next to your name when it comes to being a Michelin star holder, that being a, a measure of success in the industry that's really unparalleled. It says she, she ran a Michelin three-star restaurant for 10 years, but the asterisk, asterisk says you are not the owner, and that's different, and now you're in the owner ranks. So, so I'm wondering what your ambition is next, and, and my guess is that uh, Madame Pic in France and uh, Kamerusquiada in Spain and uh, Elena Azak in Spain as well. No, no. It, well, it, it, Elena, Elena, uh, yeah, Elena and her, her father are still very active together. So, where, whereas you're doing it on your own now. So, wh what is the ambition? Is it to be another Michelin star holder, three star holder? What will that mean when you do that? I think that it's a, it's a funny thing that, you know, that obviously I would love to have three Michelin stars, which Chef doesn't want to do it. But I never opened core to win Michelin stars. And it, by nature, obviously, the way we cook and what we do, it, it, it's happened. But I, I'd never think that it should be something that you aim for. I think you, you've got to create the best restaurant that you can in the style and the vision that you want it to be and to have its own character and personality. And it's really funny that, there's a laugh at this, but so core obviously passed one year without having anything at all. And it's been fully booked and we've had a great atmosphere and it's been a great year because it's been like, we've had no Michelin stars. And when guests come in and they talk about Michelin, we've got nothing. And it, and it was so lovely. And actually, it's funny that the second star has come and now people start giving you feedback on, <laughs> on your restaurant. And someone has said, you know, that's getting advice to, to getting three stars. It's, it's almost as if when your stars come in, the crazies come in. And, and I wanted to say to this guest, why do you presume that I want three Michelin stars? How dare you? And also, you know, I just think that, that you should never be focusing on the stars. Focus on making a great restaurant, cooking great food, and making people happy. And if the stars come, that's amazing. But it's not what we should be aiming for. You, you're here, so your answer to this question is secondhand, I guess, because you, you're, you're with us in Ireland instead of being in London. But if we walked into court tonight and sat down for dinner, what would be some of the things you serve that you'd be proudest of? Our signature dish is a potato. It's called potato and roe, and it's cooked in uh, dull seaweed, which is a product of Northern Ireland, where I grew up. Um, my aunt and uncle are the biggest potato farmers in Northern Ireland, uh, so it's a dish that's very nostalgic for me. Um, another dish that's very popular is a, a lamb carrot. So it's a, it's reversing. We call it the lamb carrot. It's a reversing of um, meat and and vegetables. So the the vegetables playing the more prominent role in this dish than the meat. Uh, and it's fun to play with humble ingredients and and make change people's perception about that. It, we're always conscious about sustainability and eating less fish and meat, more vegetables and grain. And it's about educating people. The, the carrot, you mentioned that in your panel discussion today. At Food on the Edge, which I should mention that that's where we are in uh, Galway. Um, and uh, the, the subject was, um, was it the state of our, I mean, the state of the, British food, um, and uh, I have to say that the acoustics are a little bit um, low, weak, uh, from where we were sitting. Uh, so I thought maybe you could give us some takeaways from 
the panel discussion about uh, where we are now with British food. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we were discussing our culture of, of British food and for good and for bad, probably mostly for bad. Um, but what's happening in Britain right now with food and, and how, you know, certainly the produce in Britain, we have phenomenal produce. We've always had amazing fish. I think we have, obviously, I'm going to say the best fish in the world. Lots of people say that. We have phenomenal shellfish. And it's, and it's something that, you know, we really got to cherish and champion and, and, and respect it. Um, but we're working with producers all over the UK now and growers that we didn't have 15, 20 years ago. So food's changed phenomenally. And, and you know, we talked to them then obviously about uh, the effect of Brexit and ingredients. But for me, I'm very... Um, I know we're going to be just fine because the producers that we have are phenomenal. And a restaurant such as Core is very much focused on British ingredients and working with British producers. Um, and I think that's that's for me is where British food needs to be. We should be really thinking about our own culture, the growers, the producers, where we come from, like other nations do, the French, the Nordic, Japanese. You know, we've got to be local. That, to me, is also sustainability, is, is working within your own community and environment in your own country. That's jobs for people. That's, you know not having food miles, that all of those things. If we just look around to see what we have and use it to do what we know. Yeah, the area I worry about with Brexit is not the uh, ingredients so much as the, um, the staffing, the, uh, the workers. Yeah, I mean, for sure it's going to have an impact on the hospitality industry. Um, we have a lot of, particularly front of house, um, a lot of European workers. I'm sure that, I keep saying that, that I'm pretty confident that it will sort itself out because it just simply it has to um, for both sides because, yeah, it just it has, it has to sort itself out. We will come to some kind of an agreement because we're so involved with Europe. I mean, it's... Obviously, I'm going to say it's, a, it's crazy. It's never, separation is never a good thing. Um, and we very much feel like, well, I very much grew up feeling European. And I think we were incredibly blessed to be a part of Europe and travel and have all the freedom that we had. And I just cannot, for the life of me, understand why we want to give that up. As a young person and for all young people, actually the generation growing up now are going to lose out and not have the opportunities to study freely, travel freely, the same that I did as I was growing up and work freely as I did throughout Europe and different cultures gaining experience. And now it, it's not good. The opportunity is not going to be there for them in the same way. So I hope that we can all sort it out for the, for the sake of everyone. But, um, but I'm sure it will. It has to. Well, I take... That uh, you have more things to do going on. We're in the midst of this conference. Um, I'm so happy to be able to finally talk to you. I must say, I've tried at all these conferences, and you're always surrounded by hordes of people. <laughs> but we're in a quiet media room now, and uh, it's nice to know that you're not only talented, um, organized, but also thoughtful. And that's something that I think everybody should value in. Star chef as you are. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you very much. It's nice to talk to you both. I, I can't wait till the next time we talk. Maybe we'll be at Core in London. Yeah, I and said, oh yeah, yeah. And Claire hasn't said anything. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, listeners, don't, don't be surprised if Claire Smith is the next lady to join a very select group of women. women women chefs who own and operate restaurants that have gained Michelin three stars. I think there are five. And, uh, based on our discussion, it wouldn't surprise me if Claire's number six. Anyway, we'll take a break and we'll be right back with another fine British chef.
Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Nathan Outlaw, um, your, your name is practically a household word. But, you know, do, do people really understand where you come from and what you do? Why don't you give us a brief synopsis of that? Okay. Um, yeah, my name is uh, Nathan Outlaw. Um, and, yeah, I'm not an outlaw, even though my <laughs> the name uh, probably means bad things to some people. But, it, it, yeah, it's just one of their things. Um, some people think I bought it on eBay, the name or something. Oh. It's, not, it's not true. Um, now, I, I'm, I mean, I've been a chef since I was 14 years old, and I'm now 40. So I've been cooking for a long time. And I come from a family of chefs. My dad's still a chef. Um, he still works in my restaurant in London with me. Um, so that's quite nice that, that he's... Uh, he, I see him a lot and then um, my mum is my, my PA she, she keeps me on the straight and narrow make sure I, um, I'm i here like, like I'm in Ireland at the moment make sure I turned up and, and got on the plane that I should have got on um, and my wife does all the other side of the business so she looks after all the financial stuff make sure people get paid and all the important things so I'm, I'm lucky that allows me to just get on with what I do um, I'm passionate about British seafood and British seafood um, and that stemmed from when I first went down to Cornwall when I was 19 to work Work. Uh, I work for a guy called Rick Stein. Uh, Rick Stein, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rick's like a, he's a massive, massive hero of mine and a huge influence on what I did. Um, yeah, and what what the difference between my food and Rick's food is? I mean, Rick Rick's been very uh, fortunate, I suppose. We call it fortunately. He's travelled all over the world, so his food, what he cooks in Padstow back in Cornwall, is um, is much more. He uses a local seafood, but he uses it on a global way. So he's got lots of influences from all over the world. Whereas my food is more regional, so it's Brit- it's Cornish seafood. When I say British, it's Cornish because yeah, my wife's Cornish, and Cornwall's a different country. It's, no, it's not. <laughs> so, um, um, the actual food that we do is sort of like um, integrated, and it's about the area. Um, in not in a, not in a fashionable way, because you see a lot of restaurants nowadays doing that for fashion reasons. I do it because I know that the Cornish seafood is the best in the world. So, um, yeah, I'm, I've got a big advantage. Well, you know, when we're visiting Peter's brother and sister-in-law and our nephews, um, we're always looking for Cornish crab. I see it on all the menus in London, and I never see it in St. Agnes no. or anywhere near in that in Cornwall. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I do think some people in London probably use the word Cornish and maybe it doesn't come from Cornwall. That's one thing. I know that this year has been a terrible year for Cornish crab. Um, not, not for the quality, but the actual, for catching it. It's not been, not been, um, available as it usually is. And I think that's due to a bit of overfishing, um, in the past. Um, and that's coming direct from, from the fishermen that I know, you know, talking where I'm based in, in Cornwall, in Port Isaac. It's natural. All the boat, there's five boats there and all boat, all five them concentrate on lobster and crab um, so that evidence has come from the, the fisherman's mouth you know they've told me that um, you yeah, know the but, but the Cornish crab is amazing you're right and you yeah, know and um, so is the lobster as well so um, it, but it is um, unfortunately I, I, and it still baffles me um, Cornwall and Britain um, on a whole it, are not the greatest um, seafood lovers so yeah it makes yeah yeah it's not you don't see many seafood restaurants in in the whole of Britain, really, if you look at, I mean, we're the only um, seafood restaurant that's ever had two Michelin stars ever, um, and it's in a in a weird way, it's quite sad because there's such great seafood there. Yeah, no, we we actually use a lot of Rick Stein's thing and recipes actually from his book. Yeah, yeah my my favorite is skate. Oh, you love skate? No, my, my favorite Rick Stein recipe is skate. Oh yeah, and uh, with paprika and a variety of other things in it. And I, I use, with, use it with other fish because skate is hard to get in the United States. People don't stock it because it spoils very quickly. Yeah. But uh, 
the interesting thing we didn't think we didn't include this, but there's something very important for li for listeners of WQED and PBS stations around the world. Nathan's restaurant is in Port Isaac, where, where they film Doc Martin. But Rick said, I mean, Nathan says the the accent is wrong, but 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 you don't exactly have a Cornish accent either. No, no, I'm, I'm, no, no. I'm, I'm originally from Kent, in um, yeah, obviously in southwest, uh, southeast, sorry, which is England, which is just um, outside London. So my accent is very much a southeast accent, even though I've been there for 21 years. Um, I can't get rid of this sort of uh, London-esque accent, which is uh, unfortunately stuck with me. But uh, no, it's one of the things. It's um, yeah, accents are a funny old thing. Yeah, you've got to get it right if you're going to do a show like that. Actually, a linguist tell me that um, a new language or a different language from your first language, past the age of 12, you don't get rid of your original accent. Right. That yeah. makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I can't get rid of it. Uh, now, um, the, the seafood thing uh, is one of your missions, but uh, we just watched you in other kinds of programs at this uh, Food on the Edge thing. Um, you're interested in children's culinary curriculum yeah yeah, no, for me, I mean, there's a lot of people being like food on the edge, and there's various sort of these sort of symposiums all over the world. Um, and a lot of the chefs and food industry people get on stage and talk about themselves, and um, which is great, which is great. But what we got to realise is that it all starts with children. I mean, everything starts with children. We all were children once, you know. So, um, and I think, and I can talk from a UK standpoint that the actual food you'll never get the appreciation for restaurants and for hotels and for, for the working in the industry, the service industry, um, if you don't teach them young. Yeah, and this is a thing, and I see more and more, um, I mean, I'm 40 years old and people of my era don't know how to cook. So they've got children, yeah, and that. You know, and if you, you if you're fortunate enough to have like a grandma or a mum and dad or whatever that, that, that cooked with you, then that's great, but majority of people don't. I don't understand. We have round-the-clock cooking shows on television, and people watch them morning, noon, night, and nobody cooks. Why? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I think probably because they're spending too much time watching the telly and not cooking. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I, I've, I've written uh, five cookery books, and, 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 you know, people buy more cookery books than ever, you know, and the same thing, well, you know, they buy these cookery books just to look at, you know, and it's a bit of a strange one. Um, and I've fallen, you know, myself into that trap of uh, being on the verge of celebrity, chefy type thing, and I, and I don't like the label, but, um, you know, it's an industry and um, the way that the world is within the restaurant industry, that that's sort of what you, you know, sometimes you need to do those sort of things to make sure that people come to a restaurant in Cornwall. It's a long way, it's five hours from London. You know, so, um, yeah, there is aspects of that, but it is very strange when there's a bigger interest in food and drink, generally, but people still maybe don't do it practically. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I, we've noticed that actually, even though publishing has dropped, publishing of cookbooks has risen. I mean, we always have review copies of cookbooks. It's like a phenomenon. Okay, aside from this, I mean, I, I think, personally, um, um, that we're shifting. You mentioned you were on the verge of celebrity chef. I think we're shifting very majorly from the era of celebrity chef or ton or whatever you want to call it to, <clears throat> to an era where there are the key issues that everybody's concerned about. It's an issues-oriented uh, field now. Um, things like uh, suicide and um, um, substance abuse and uh, fraud in food supplies. And I could go on and on and on. Do you agree? 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been more awareness with things like that in recently um, within within the restaurant industry. I mean, I can only talk from within the in- industry that I know, um, and you know, things like you just mentioned then, like um, you know, suicide and sort of mental health. Mental health has been a very very big thing recently, um, and it's great. I mean, people need to talk about it. I mean, I'm very fortunate, you know, and I must sound like a boring person because I've not I've not really I'm not really a big drinker. I'm not really I'm not very dabbled in drugs. I'm not you know. That sort of thing, but I am in an industry where I'm aware it you know, goes on. I mean, and I and I can say from my kitchens, um, you know, that you know I've never really had any of that happen. But that may be just because I lead by example, you know, and I don't won't accept it. Maybe you know I don't let it happen. But you know, I've got friends in the industry, um, the other chefs and restaurant managers that have um, yeah all sorts of nasty things, and we had a few deaths as well. You know, and it's um, it's a it's a horrible thing. I think that the most important thing is what's happening now is people are talking about. It. Because if you don't talk about it, then you know, then people that maybe um, are in trouble and are thinking about harming themselves um, have nowhere to go. You know, so here at Food on the Edge, one one of the issues already in this program and in the previous years, I know as well, has been the issue of sustainability. And seafood is one of the parts of the food spectrum which is most negatively affected by overfishing is is this is this an issue around the the waters around Cornwall where where you're buying your fish 100% yes yeah 100% yes it's an issue i mean it's one of the things where um um, I'm lucky enough to know because of being in an area like Cornwall for over 20 years. I, I know the fishermen. I know where the fish comes from. I can tell you, you know, the actual areas where it's caught. So, I mean, I can. But the thing is, you can't. That can't be said for everybody else. You can't. You know, you go to a supermarket, you buy some fish. You can't. You don't know where it's come from. They might say something on the label. It might give you a rough outline, like it says the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, the Atlantic Ocean is a big place, right? So, um, but with Cornwall, I mean, sustainability. What I would say is, it's an area of the world where the fishermen genuinely, gen- genuinely have been sustainable. I mean, they, they're small boats. Most of them are day boats, one, two men crews. You can physically, you can't be unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't be. It's not possible. You're not big enough. So, and because I'm buying from those fishermen, and you mentioned skate being your favourite fish. I mean, that's one fish that I'm not meant to use. You know, also on the on the endangered species list, like for, yeah, there's certain rays which obviously you know which skate falls into that and that classification, but um, certain rays you can eat, but it's one of the things that they say stay away from. You know, so I mean, it's it's such a minefield um, fish seafood in Denmark, and because I've been, you know, I'm sort of put down as a seafood chef and people come to me like talking about these sort of issues I mean um, all I can talk, say is it from from my angle is I I can see where it comes from I know how they fish it I know how it's treated once it gets on deck I know yeah when it comes to me but but I know also understand that a lot of people can't do that you know they can't see that but Cornwall as a whole is um, you know you've got an ocean where you've got the English Channel one side, you've got the Irish Sea, the Atlantic, and then you've got the Gulf Stream zooming up around it. So it brings so many varieties of seafood. You know, we're getting, uh, in just the time I've been in Cornwall, you're getting things now like uh, gilt head wild brings, which were once um, uncommon are very common you know in certain times of the year and you're seeing things like red mullet and gurnard in plentiful you know which have, these are all the ones that have come up from the mediterranean so that area and they've come up and you have seen I mean, people say to me oh you can't eat cod well i thought i talked to a fisherman the other day who's 80 years old he said i can't every time he puts his net in there he's getting cod you know so it's, I, I think he's a big big um a massive subject and i don't think many people have got a huge grasp on it and then we could talk about quotas as well but that's another thing we have friends tony and tina who who own a luxury bed breakfast and dinner place right on the devon border and tony said his secret to getting the best seafood was he got himself elected to the group that manages the auction in East Loo and West Loo so that, <laughs> so that he could go down there and bid himself. Yeah. Is, is that something you thought about doing? 
In the past, we've done it. Yeah, we've done that. I mean, I'm a great believer in leaving experts to their their field. I mean, and some of the guys that buy the fish know what they're doing. But you also got they are um, the, the the seafood industry in general is full of pirates, and you've got to be careful and you've got to know who you're buying from. They 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 like to bend the truth a little bit. But you know, your friend going to Lou Market and seeing it for himself is probably the best way to do it. To be honest, you. One of our favorite things we love to eat in Cornwall is smoked mackerel. And that that's, seem, seems like an outstanding product that's sort of always going to be there on, on a sort of a, a craft level movement. Is, is that still going on? Yeah, all, all the smokehouses of, of Cornwall, um, you know, they've the, the good ones have unfortunately closed down and it's, it's gone. But, I mean, the smoke, smoke mackerel is, you're right, it's the best convenience food you can have because you just get it out of the fridge and then you, it's ready, you know. So I always tell a lot of people, I think, actually, when you've got, we live in a world of convenience food, all these food, fast food chains, you stand in the queue, it can take you five, maybe ten minutes to get your burger or whatever, you can cook a piece of fish in three minutes. So fish is the best convenience food you can have. Well, I mean, I want to assure our listeners that he was not fabricating this fact that he appears, for as far as I know, you to be quite normal. <laughs> not boring, however. And I really enjoyed meeting you and talking to you. I just wish we could hit you at Christmas time at your restaurant. You never know. I might be open. We'll call. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you so much for being a part of the program, Nathan. You should probably really be called Dick Turpin, right? Yeah. The highwayman. Or Robin Hood. <laughs> oh, but he was a good guy. He, he's from my part of the world. Yeah. A- anyway, thank you so much again. Don't forget, listeners, if you watch Port Isaac, you need to get Rick Stein. No, not Rick Stein's cookbook. <laughs> you, need to get Nath- you need to get Nathan Outlaw's cookbook. Plural. Yeah. And then, and then remember, the biggest tip that just went by, and you might have missed it, is... The most important thing about cooking fish is not too long. No, not too long. Three or four minutes maximum. Thank you so much for being a part of On the Menu and enjoy, enjoy the rest of Food on the Edge. Cool. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. So we will. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net. We're still in Galway, uh, food on the edge, but our next two guests might suggest otherwise. Uh, they, they, they qualify as, I think, probably the, the most unusual restauranters we, ha- we have ever, ever met. Well, we, we tried to understand this concept, and, and we talked to them for a while, and maybe you could understand it. Anyway, for, for, for whatever reason... Very freewheeling, I gather. Yeah, if you're looking for an ethnically different restaurant, which just happens to have swept up a Michelin star, yeah, then th- this one's for you. Well, we've been reading about this duo in their restaurant, Ikoi, <laughs> in London. Um, they just got their first Michelin star. Um, and it, there's... Background story is interesting. They are interesting. And everybody has the concept wrong. We're going to get all that straightened out now. Um, Again, we're at the Food on the Edge conference, which you'll be giving a program, you guys, um, tomorrow, um, which has nothing to do with what you're talking about, as I understand it. (laughs) Let's start with uh, Jeremy Chan. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I'm going to ask Iray Hassan Adukali to um, tell about his background. And then I need the story of how the two of you met and how you came to open a restaurant. Let's start, first of all, Jeremy. Where did you come from? <laughs> you came into the media very quickly. Um, I live in London. I'm half Chinese, half Canadian. Canadian? Half Canadian, yeah. Exactly. And, um, Can I yeah. Um, higher. Higher. Okay. And 
I'm the chef and the, the creative aspect of Ikui. And um, yeah. <laughs> what does the name Ikui mean? Ikui is a place in Lagos, Nigeria, which is where Ire is from. And uh, we picked it as a name for the restaurant simply because we liked the way that it sounded and we liked the image that we created inspired by the sound and the look of that word. No more than that. Okay, now, Ire, um, a little bit about your background, and maybe you could start the story about how the two of you met. So, uh, I live in London as well. Um, I was born in Nigeria, I moved to London for school, uh, UK to go to school. Um, did my A-levels and then went to university in London, and then worked in finance after that, and then uh, quit to open a restaurant with Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy and I met when we were about 15. Uh, 15? Yeah. Uh, just at a mutual friend's house. Uh, we had a similar friend that we used to hang out in the friend's house. Uh, we kept in touch. Jeremy went to university in the States. I was in London and he came back to Europe. We lived together. And then, yeah, this, the idea of opening a restaurant was probably, probably came about when we lived together. So how long was this in its planning stage? It was never a plan. We just, when we were flatmates, um, we just used to cook dinner sometimes. And uh, we enjoyed cooking dinner. I used to cook. And um, it was kind of an escape from the grim life of like working in the city and just generally miserable condition of living in a city like London. We would cook and have people around and just enjoy ourselves and like we enjoyed being with friends and we enjoyed like creating a nice environment for each other and for our, for our friends because that was like an escape from, from the horrors of existence. And um, yes, we just loved it. And then I carried on cooking in a few different restaurants. I, I, I started as working as a chef just over five years ago, five, six years ago, and um, I pretty much convinced myself that I could do whatever I wanted and didn't have to listen to anyone and didn't have to do any kind of formal training or didn't have to spend a long time in anyone's kitchen. I would just go there and amass as much information as possible in as quick and as short as time as possible and analyze that information for my own purposes, comparing it with what I knew and what I wanted to do. And then we got together when I quit working in restaurants I realized I never wanted to work for anyone ever again because working in a kitchen under a head chef if you have a very strong will means that you have to submit your will to someone else's vision and you have to do everything they want you to do and it is a good way of formal training but certain human beings are split into categories of types and some are better followers some are better leaders and so yeah it's, re it's really funny. There's a, actually a re rather unfortunate book out there that was written by Gordon Ramsay about his life. But he explains how he got into cooking in Paris. And it's very much the same story. The chef was in charge and you got to do exactly as you were told and that was all there was to it. So you had the freedom, but you also ha must have had a, a rent check. <laughs> so, so how did you manage that? Oh, to pay, the, to pay my rent. My rent. Well, then I start, then Ire um, asked me if I wanted to open a Nigerian restaurant with him to be a consultant chef to come up with a menu to create some kind of like fun, gimmicky, not gimmicky, but playful take on Nigerian food. And it wasn't meant to be anything with integrity or substance. It was meant to be an entrepreneurial endeavor to make, make, a, make a living out of cooking that wasn't cooking for other people but was to create our own business. And that's when we started doing that and I put together a menu and it just wasn't, it was just too fake and uh, it was lacking integrity and it was just empty. So we decided instead of that, we'd just create a real restaurant with real feelings and ideas and it wasn't anything other than creating the best restaurant we thought of based on how we reacted to ingredients and stripping it from cultures, from 
a gender, to be a certain type of restaurant, to be an African restaurant. We just wanted to make a good restaurant. Well, can you simplify and convey what is the concept of the, the restaurant? It's not an African restaurant. Everybody thinks it is. So who wants to do that? Should we give it you? I think it's just a restaurant. Uh, we don't really find ourselves trying to fit under any concept umbrella. So we just want to create the best restaurant we can, exploring these ingredients. At the moment, we're exploring West African ingredients. We might, 10 years down the line, explore ingredients from somewhere else. Um, but it, this, this is where we're starting, and, and it's just, it's, for us, it's more about the, the customers, the guests, their experience, making sure they have the best experience in all possible ways, as opposed to what kind of food we're cooking. So, uh, yeah. Mm. Can, can you just run through a couple of dishes so that it, our listeners can get, grasp this concept, which is kind of, Amorphous. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, describing the dishes might alienate them even further. <laughs> because, because, because these dishes don't, they're designed to not be comparable to anything else. So there's nothing, if I describe them, they're a completely arbitrary combination of ingredients. That they, don't, they don't reference any traditional no, method. Yeah. But tell, tell them the, 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 the Western African ingredient, what kind of parts do we have in your menu? What do we oh. have? They yeah. so we, so we use like, we use a plantains a lot on our menu. We use a lot of um, different types of varieties of chilies. Scotch bonnet chilies are our favorite. Um, but we do our kind of most famous dish is a plantain with uh, raspberry salt and a smoked scotch bonnet chili emulsion. So it's chilies that have been burnt and smoked and then they're infused into oil and then this oil is emulsified with a lavender inside it and uh, egg yolks to make kind of like a mayonnaise but it's very enriched and it has it conveys the like sensation of burning and smokiness but it's very innocuous looking and then the plantain is um, seasoned with raspberry salt so it's bright red but those flavor those combinations aren't they don't follow a logic, or they do. They do follow logic, but they don't follow anything that previously exists in in, in history. It's just it's just something that's been like pulled out of the depths of thinking and dreaming, like that. A lot of the way that we think about food is is about dreaming. It's about dreaming about aesthetics, dreaming about sensations. This is why you can't talk about it as a singular concept because it's basically saying the restaurant is our dreams manifested into the best quality food we can put on the plate in, the, in our version of what beautiful and comfortable looks like. That's what the concept is. It's not, there's no cultural agenda whatsoever. Like, it's completely stripped of culture. So when people come and ask me, like, tell me about growing up in Nigeria and your travels there, my answer is I got the worst food poisoning of my life and I was completely uninspired to cook when I went there. It's a true answer. And, it's, and there's, no way, there's no way we're going to try and fabricate a narrative it doesn't it doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm thinking about the Michelin inspector who came and then eventually gave you a star. He must have driven him out of his mind. <laughs> and what what has been the reaction of of Londoners? Enough of them must be coming to dine at your restaurant, otherwise you wouldn't still be open. But what what's what have the, some of the reactions been like? Well, I mean, it's it's changed since since the start. Obviously, um, we, we are busier. Um, the restaurant has been through peaks and troughs. We, we we had a very strong opening because it's something new, something different, and everyone wants to try it, so it's on everyone's list. But then six months down the line, everyone had tried it, so it went it went quiet, uh, and then it was it got a bit tricky. We had a tricky summer, um, but then it started to pick up. Uh, I, I think the more confident we were in what we were doing and what we wanted to do, the more the restaurant decided to, to pick up and got busier. And then the stars come along and helped as well. Um, yeah. So I think I think London is finally embracing the restaurant slowly. I think that the our crowd and audience is probably the most yo-yo racial 
dynamic you will ever see in a, in a restaurant because when we opened, we were full of Nigerians, 100% black audience. And they came thinking we were getting Nigerian food and that is not what they were getting. And then I would look them in the eye and they'd say, is this jollof rice? What is this? And I was like, this is Chinese jollof rice. <laughs> like, you know, I, I would stand by my feelings and what I did. And I wouldn't pretend that this was their grandmother's cooking. I said, this is not your grandmother's cooking. This is my cooking. And this is what it is. And they didn't like it. And they tried to take us down on TripAdvisor, on Google, it, many, race, many racist remarks towards the Chinese chef in the kitchen. They should hire a proper African cook. And yeah, and then we got a review in the Times, which is an incredibly white middle class audience. So the entire dining room was now white. It was completely white and there wasn't a single Nigerian in the audience. A week later, and then two weeks later after that, we suddenly get Russians, Asians, <laughs> Americans, and then some more Nigerians start coming back in, and then suddenly another review comes out in The Guardian, and it's completely British again. So it's been, like, it's very, very interesting. What's the place look like? Uh, looks comfortable. Um, I, I think the design is, is quite unique. It's not, when you walk past a restaurant, it's not... It doesn't look like anything else in, in the area. It's, it's not a typical restaurant. It's, it's, not, it's not trying to follow a formula for a restaurant in that area. Um, it's in the town. Oh, oh, yeah. So, so it's, it's, in, it's in St. James's Market, so, which is just off Piccadilly Circus um, in central London. Um, an area that's normally filled with tourists. and An area that London has really come to, but, but it's changing. And uh, I, I think that the restaurant... If, it, if we could call it about, if we could put it into a concept, I'd say it's, it's about open-mindedness. It's a culturally open-minded restaurant. Our policy towards guests is everybody is a somebody. We don't care if you're a hedge fund manager or you're a stagiaire coming to just have a saved up for a special meal. Our policy is like we we make sure that everyone has the best experience. Like there's no there's no differentiation. So we get people saying oh, I've been racially segregated and someone explained me the menu because I'm black and a white waiter said that to me and our answer to them is you didn't get any special treatment actually because everyone's the same. So that's the thing about where we are. It's like we're in the center so we access all different parts of London. It's not west, it's not posh, it's not cool, it's not east. We're in a no man's land, which is Piccadilly, which is actually a horrible place. It's a horrible place. It's like... It's, it's, it's like the center of Dante's Inferno, but there's a little... What's cool about Koi is it's like a respite from hell in the center. Yeah, that's a good point that you guys have to mention. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell the story about how you come across the ingredients. Oh. So the, the library and the fact that you... Frame it as a question. Um, how do you find this, these ingredients? Um, I mean, you're, you're not living there. You probably don't know that much about it. How do you find what you're going to use? And how do you find your inspiration? Um, when we started, I, I opened an Excel sheet. And I just set myself a project of writing down every single thing that is eaten in that region. Everything that is eaten. Every single product. What, why, why, what is eaten? What is used in cooking? And to do that, I, I asked people, I talked to people, I talked to anthropologists in Nigeria, I went to the British Library with Ire, and I just amassed a list of products, like a computer. And then I just ate all of them, and then saw which ones were delicious, which ones weren't. And then just made very pragmatic steps to creating dishes. But with, it, with these ingredients, I would, we would always eat them, try them together, and we would never say like, oh, let's make this ingredient, like, put it in a stew like it's done in this culture. We actually just completely ignored all traditions. So it's not a traditional restaurant, neither is it a trendy restaurant. It's, it's a restaurant that's pioneering a new idea, a new reaction to flavors. And I think that's the way a lot of chefs work, actually. Um, but we're just, we're just veering, steering towards a different part of the world and opening up new lines of communication and dialogue with people about other products and the reaction to the ingredients as it, you know is, is creative it's not 
it's not um it's literally it's a catalyst the ingredient is a catalyst for a new idea it's not we don't use the ingredient and think how is it used and let's copy that and let's try and improve a pre-existing concept it's actually we taste take the ingredient eat it make mental associations to other parts of our memories and our experiences combine that with a beautiful experience that we've had in a restaurant or in our childhood or last week when we had this perfectly textured chicken skin like why can't we apply the burning sensation of peppercorns to that crispy chicken skin and create a new dish with semi-dehydrated tomatoes and the smoked cod's row mousse or something that's it like, there's no, that's it it's like why not it's like using like memory in a logical way to create something new and then there's a whole aesthetic aspect of food as well aesthetic like yeah yeah where does that come from when you ask chefs when they plate their dishes in like Gordon Ramsay's restaurant they look at what other chefs plated or they look at the history of classical cooking to see how dishes are assembled we look at or I look at memories of childhood scary movies that I used to watch or textures of rocks or whatever but it looks beautiful and is like stimulating I, I see a giant logistical problem here <laughs> it's the ingredients are coming from three or four thousand miles away and, and you're not buying enough of it to, to uh, really say well yeah I'll, I'll take a, a container load of plantains because that's exactly what I need so, so how do you solve that? I mean, m most restaurateurs in London that we know have, have now abandoned the, uh, the, the, the market down near London Bridge and they've moved a few blocks away to, a, to another market with a street name after it. But at least there are a lot of chefs going there and buying the same kinds of ingredients. Uh, you're not. You're, you're, you're buying ingredients that are... If, if anything, you can, the more unusual, the better, I'm guessing. Yeah, uh, we're actually still able to find, for example, plantain in, in London. London is very multicultural, and there's, there's a big West African presence. So the ingredients are actually quite, quite easy to source in most of them. And some of them we get from, from Nigeria. People bring them in for us. And the thing is, these ingredients come in such large... You can get a, 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 a quantity of um, peppercorns that will last you months. So, so, so if, if we if we get one one consignment or one one um, sorry one um, package, uh, that's, that's that that could take us through yes half the year. So the other thing is, there's a bit, the large West African Afro Caribbean diaspora in London is on our doorstep there's incredibly pungent, powerful ingredients on our doorstep and they aren't packaged or delivered in a very streamlined way that a Western audience is maybe used to. So people just kind of walk by these shops which are just full of powerful ingredients. So we have a pantry at Okoye, we call it our pantry, but it's basically a pantry for mouth-watering reactions. It's a pantry that makes people salivate because of the properties of these ingredients. They're just extremely high in umami. They're extremely pungent, extremely aromatic. There's a lot of interesting um, kind of uh, cross alignment with things like Japan and China and Thailand and West Africa in terms of products that have been naturally fermented to increase umami, increase access to digestion and salivation to you know, sustain nutrients. So there's all these interesting things as well which we can get onto, but there's so many things about the food and what inspires us. But, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, taking the creative course implies that you can experience a great deal of freedom. It also, though, involves a great deal of stress to have that always coming up with something creative and new. And what I'm thinking of is, you as the business person behind it, you must have some shaky nights. 
No, 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 regarding the creative process, um, I mean, I, I've never had any cause to question Jeremy's, Jeremy's cooking, Jeremy has cooked since we lived together, and I've never had a bad meal, so that, that, that aspect of the business I'm, I'm not worried about. Um, it's, uh, other things that keep me up at night probably keep Jeremy up at night as well, to be fair, the things like, is anyone going to walk through the door? Or how, how are we going to pay our next, <laughs> our, our next, our next, uh, our next uh, council, uh, our next uh, business rate? So yeah, th these are the things that that, 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 we, that keep us keep us worried. Well, I, I we've talked, and I I still I think probably the only way we're ever going to understand what you're doing is to go there. So <laughs> so listeners, it's Akoya, uh, Akoye, and um, it's it's the new sensation in London. And I think that, that we all need to go there and try it out. <laughs> he really just said, yes, please. <laughs> Regardless of what it sounds like, these young men are not entirely mad. <laughs> just, just, a, just about 50%. <laughs> but but let's, let's, spell, let's spell the, uh, yeah, the, name. the name out as, as it's recorded on the internet. So, Ikui is I-K-O-Y-I, and you should visit our website, which is I-K-O-Y-I-London.com, IkuiLondon.com, and you can see some images of what we do and a little bit about us, our collaborators and where we are exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Are you going my conference? Okay, that's all from On The Menu. Until the same time, same place next week. We hope you'll join us then and we'll still be in Ireland. <laughs> anything, else, then. anything else you have to say, my dear? Bye-bye.